Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide through the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for Frontlines, tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, we'll be catching up with Todd Wilson and Ephraim Smith on Candid Conversations. The Candid Conversation Show is intended to help leaders engage in conversations about diversity in a healthy way. Each show focuses on a topic and helps participants unpack what that topic is, why it's divisive, and what can be done to promote both change and unity. Let's join Todd and his co-host for today's episode of Candid Conversations. Welcome, Exponential. Peyton Jones here, and we are here for our final episode of Candid Conversations. And I am with the legendary Ephraim Smith, co-host on this. And uh, that is, if you were wondering, a Wheaties box in the back with himself and Colin Powell on there. So, pow, right there. Right there, baby. That's pretty rad. No Photoshop. That's the real deal. And it is an actual box of Wheaties. Like, that is not a construct. That is a box of Wheaties. I, I would eat that cereal. But man, uh, that, that box of Wheaties, been, it's been with me for a while. So I don't <laughs> in it. There's no Wheaties in it? Uh, no. Oh, okay. I thought there was. It's just the frame. Real box. There's no actual. I don't hear anything. I mean, it, put it this way. If there's Wheaties in it, and I'm shaking it and I can't hear anything, you don't want to eat these Wheaties. Nice. Well, you know, I was going to say, yeah, you, it, you're, you're evoking memories of the best cereal I ever ate that no one knows about. And it was those marshmallow peeps. They came out with the cereal for that. And I got it at like the 99 cent store. I shouldn't even be talking about it, but it was amazing. It was too good for the world. It was marshmallow flavored cereal. That's all I can say. We, I can't we'll say anymore. Grant to see what his generation eats in cereal. I mean, me growing up, I was a Captain Crunch guy, and I was I was really into those monster ones. You know, Boo Berry. Oh, Boo Berry Crunch. Oh, yeah, Boo. Frankenberry. Frankenberry. Count Chocula. I'm with you. Yes. This is good stuff. Grant, you were the spokesman of an entire generation. So the other <laughs> co-host, we haven't even introduced you yet, but uh, not only do you want to hear your cereal, you were busting out some uh, generational things between DC and Marvel. And I, this is Candid Conversations, after all. We, we have to hear just a little bit of that. Then we're going to do today a retrospective of the entire series. And we're going to talk uh, about the things that shocked us, the things that su- surprised us. Maybe there were things that disappointed or troubled us. Um, I'm going to take more of the backseat. I-, I counted up that I was here for a third of the episodes, but really I'm kind of a fill-in. Let's, let's be honest. Uh, the Exponential's founder and CEO, Todd Wilson, has been a pivotal part of this, and he's on sabbatical now, so he couldn't join us today. But again, I'm the fill-in guy, so here I am. But Grant, uh, bust out your cereal, and then let's hear a little bit of that uh, mojo you were laying down about Marvel. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, 
I was thinking, what's the next generation's cereal choice? And I, I mean, there's been a lot of changes and advances in generations when it comes to clothing styles, when it comes to technology, when it comes to politics or moral values and all that. But I don't think the cereal game has changed much in this generation. Like, I, don't, I can't think of, oh, yeah, this is, I mean, it's not like Cheetos to Takis, like some foods maybe, but I, I can't think of. I think I think the the cereal game is is a peaceful, steady place. Um, I mean, I I eat. Uh, you know, I it's funny you even bring up cereals. I people will often ask people, leaders like ourselves that are very, do very niche things. They always ask you, "What would you do if you weren't doing what you're doing today?" And I've always said I would be the marketing director for O's cereal. <laughs> And O cereal is, I feel like, one of the most underrated, underknown cereals that I've never introduced someone to where they've gotten O cereal. And it's not everywhere. Sometimes it's a target, sometimes it's not. It's just called O's. And the slogan is little good things in the middle. And no one I've ever introduced to it has ever tasted it and thought, oh, that's pretty good. They're always like, this is insanely good. Um, so really? I just think there's a lot of money to be made. I'm not called to that in this season, but O cereal marketing. Better, better than Cheerios. Yeah, they're like Cheerios, but they're a little honeyer, and they have these like type of crunch. I don't know what's in the middle, but they're little good things in the middle, like they say. Now, knowing Ephraim the way I do, and knowing myself, I guarantee you, Ephraim and I are both buying O's this find week, them, and we're them, eating dude, I guarantee. I'm way home, I'm stopping. It's happening. For some O's. O's cereal. Grocery store, I can find it, Grant. I I think Target has it is the one that's the most consistent to have it, but I have gone sometimes and it doesn't. Okay. So well, Walmart and Target, I think, will, will possibly have it. Walmart well, guys, and O's just became the sponsors of today's show. Okay. They were, <laughs> and, and lest I'm never allowed to host another show again to, uh, today, I better get into our ac- actual topic, which is, as we said before, a retrospective. Those of you watching online, uh, be sure to drop your questions in the chat. This will be a retrospective. We've, we've got a lot of freedom here. We've covered 12 core topics on diversity. The issues are obviously not covered in 12 topics. Um, They're a lot more complex than an hour long, and you've been limited to hearing us having candid conversations. I am kind of going to host today. Uh, I'm not, I, I think of Grant and Ephraim here as really the, the stars of this show. Um, and, and I'll kind of field, you know, for both of you, what have been some of the outstanding moments over the course of these conversations. Hopefully, um, as I know both of you came on to help raise awareness, I also know that um, I'm sure you, you've got takeaways and things that you've learned as well. So I want to get into some of those. So what over the past 12 weeks, I mean, you made the point out from this, this show has gone longer than the, the remake of Dynasty. <laughs> hey, that's great. We've outlasted Dynasty remake, uh, Marvels and Humans on ABC. We've longer than that. So, hey. We had a good so what have, what have been some of your outstanding moments? Well, you know, towards the beginning, if it wasn't the very first episode, I think we had Dr. John Perkins on. And so, you know, for me, uh, Dr. John Perkins is like the, the pioneer. He's, he, he's, he's, he's a patriarch of helping the church in America biblically think through issues of race, reconciliation, uh, unity, uh, biblical justice. And so the, the conversation, I, we had some questions going in, 
but I knew this is Dr. John Perkins. So you could give him one question and you, and you have an episode. And so uh, I, I, from that episode, what I remember is the, the call he gave to us to speak truth and love and yet be bold and courageous. So this is a moment where we have to courageously enter into conversations about race and diversity and biblical justice and reconciliation. But uh, being courageous is not at the expense of suspending truth and love. That's good. It's really good. That's, that is yeah. a powerful takeaway for sure. Grant, how about you? I kind of think about two episodes that really were impactful. Um, one, I mean, it was Ephraim. There was a time where me, Ephraim, and uh, Albert Tate got to be on the same one. And I think just seeing uh, Ephraim and Albert talk about, uh, I think it was bias uh, and discrimination and the timing of it. Not only, I mean, I loved, uh, I told Todd this, uh, Ephraim. So I just loved, I could tell you and Albert have a good relationship. I think you guys complement each other well, but I was like, I felt like, Although um, I was, me and him were interviewing, me and you were interviewing Albert. I was like, I felt like it was a good time to interview you and um, Albert because the timing of it was, man, I think it was days after uh, the shooting of Jacob Blake. And then um, also the shooting from uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. And it just really gave this juxtaposition of bias and um, discrimination or just um, two different situations mirrored. Um, just happening very different. And uh, I thought that was very powerful. I thought the way y'all talked um, was very honest. Um, I think it, it left room for healing. I think it uh, encouraged people, um, but also gave a strong charge. And then second was also um, Leon's Crump. Just, um, I would highly encourage just for story. Um, there are several stories that um, Leon's Crump shared that I'm like, man, those those are hard to, for anyone to hear and say, hey, there's not discrimination, racism, bias, um, especially in policing. Just unfortunately, he's encountered some um, not so great stories um, with the police. But uh, I think the way he handled it was the best he could. And still, it shows um, kind of what can happen if you're an African-American in America. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I also think about there were um, some episodes that I had with, uh, I think one with you, Peyton, and one with Todd, where our guest actually um, uh, had pre-recorded uh, a presentation to lay the groundwork ahead of time. Um, and um, I, I remember the one with George Yancey. And uh, again, he's another voice, you know, a scholar. Um, I mean, he's been teaching in the academy on racial reconciliation for a long time. And uh, uh, his his reminding us of um, just the, you know how do we define racism? How do we enter in conversations about race? Because there's so many definitions, and I think that's one of the things that's dividing us right now. Is is there's very there's various uh, definition camps when it comes to race and racism and, and these kind of topics. And so for him to kind of um, give you know, give a presentation that could pull us into a common definition space so that we could have healthier dialogue, uh, I, I thought was important too. Yeah, I think um, that that is really important. I mean, 
you can definitely see in America that um, people always juxtapose and retreat back into their familiar trenches. And there's always cheerleaders trying to, you know, I, I, the way I look in America perhaps is a little more cynical. It's how I look at the human race. And that is that people are always vying for power. And when situations in America happen, people capitalize on almost anything that happens. I, I felt, you know, for me, if we're being candid, I felt the ability to say black lives matter was fulfillment of James's injunction to mourn with those who mourn. Mm. Um, and, and not, and, and to resist the capitalizing on those who fear losing their power when things get, you know, when the, when the, when the boat gets shaken, that's, that's how I interpret events. You know, um, people will capitalize and hi- And for me, I, I felt honestly that so much of what it started with, with George Floyd got a little hijacked and a little obscured. And I was a little jealous. I'm raising two little ladies of color knowing that my uh, future son is most likely going to be a black man um, is very personal to me. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, my, 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 my nephew um, had very many uh, situations like were described what you were mentioning, Grant, uh, when Leon's came on. And uh, I've been in all these conversations. I'm, I'm in the wings, you know, I, uh, Brooks Heyman runs this show behind the scenes for us. And I'm also, I'm also there listening to every conversation. And, you know, as I hear these things, I just think these shows were put on to be able to teach the church to listen, to be slow to speak, quick to listen and slow to become angry. And I, I, I think we're still miles off from that. Yeah. Um, uh, next, next. Unless you have a thought, uh, I, I'm hosting this. Sorry, I probably shouldn't be uh, pontificating as much. But uh, what, what over the last, you know, one one of the things that sticks out when you interview people a lot is that um, you quickly learn. I interview a lot of authors, uh, speakers, leaders, and you quickly learn that there are leaders who um, everything's always theory to them. They always come on and they share things like, in my book about befriending your neighbors. And then if you were to ask them, well, who on your street are you currently, you know, they've not, uh, like a deer in the headlights, you know, they, they wrote a book basically. Um, I know you two on here, you, you live what you say, um, but has there been anything over the last um, 12 episodes that you felt inspired you to either change something in your life or maybe to add something or it even changed the way that you thought? Did anyone inspire you to do something different or think in a different way? Yeah, that, that's good. You know, um, in some ways I feel like uh, the episodes, they um, – some of them were, it was like refueling for me. It was, it was giving me uh, new energy, new passion to, to continue to move forward. Um, definitely, you gain new insights when you hear uh, the stories. Uh, you know, you know as, we, as we talked about, when, when you hear um, 
Albert Tate, uh, not just sharing practical theology or theory, but sharing his own stories. When, when Leon's Crump is doing that, um, I think you just, I, I think that the new insight for me, if it's new, is just always looking for new ways to receive, respect someone's story that it might mature me in my Christian walk. That's not a new insight, but every time you hear someone's stories, it's a new opportunity. So, so I think for me, it would probably be more new opportunities because in this time that is so divisive, you know, so uncivil, if we in the body of Christ can just restore our ability to hear someone's story, receive it, uh, bring some semblance of reverence to it, and then go, what is God trying to do in my Christian growth, in my Christian maturity from this story that my brother or sister is, is giving me the honor and blessedness to receive? Um, I think for me, uh, there's a couple things. I mean, uh, man, I'm going blank on his name. Uh, Miles McPherson, uh, him talking about being biracial, just as personally, that was probably uh, helpful for me. I, a lot of the communicators on race um, conversations in, in the church today, they do tend to be like, they're either black, they're Latino, they're Asian. Um, him kind of being biracial and talking about, I think the unique difficulties when you feel like, am I enough Mexican to be Mexican? Oh, but I'm also white. So am I more white? And, uh, and just even when you have Latino or Asian, uh, I think uh, it's not always acknowledged that if you can't speak uh, Spanish and, or speak, uh, and really connected to the tradition of Latino or uh, Asian community, you can even be rejected by that community. Even though you look like them grew up, you literally are Latino. Um, then you got, two different groups that you're only half of and both of them don't think you're either of them. Um, and so you kind of have to subform your own group. And so him kind of talking about that, which I think is important. I think because the next generation is only going to be more and more biracial as we're seeing more and more uh, diversity in relationships and uh, kids and even adoption, man. Uh, that's a unique way to, to raise a kid where they're like, I am this, but I also am growing up in a culture like this. And so, think that was helpful. I think uh, Matt Chandler talking about uh, privilege and how uh, it's, it isn't something, even though it feels like it's something we should be ashamed of, um, it's better to actually leverage it but, and acknowledge it and then leverage it to open doors. I think, uh, again, this, it, it correlates with the next generation, in my opinion, too, is um, I, I think that I think the race conversation and the generational diversity conversation sometimes have some similarities in that the church wants to reach young people. Um, but sometimes they just want to create things and they want young people to come. Uh, but I would say some of the same principles with, if you want a diverse church is you can't just create things and say, Hey, we want diverse people to come to our thing and enjoy our thing. It's like, no, they have to help create that thing. And then they have to help lead that thing. And they have to see representation in that thing. Um, it all applies for the next generation as well. And so uh, for me, I just want to be a, a better with my privilege of whatever reason God given me um, the, opening a door um, as a minority um, to open the door for other minorities in the next generation and to just open the door for more young leaders in the church uh, to share their voice. 
That's a powerful reminder. In a lot of our other conversations on exponential, particularly there's a show on Monday called Frontlines, we've been having that conversation about including, um, you know, even at the core team level with the church plant, you know, thinking about, well, if I'm going into an ethnically diverse neighborhood, even if I'm not, shouldn't I be thinking about this at the very beginning? You know, in Acts 20, verse 4, Paul literally, I mean, the more we read Paul, right, the more we realize he's ahead of the curve. In Acts 20, verse 4, there's eight people he leaves Ephesus with, and it break, Luke breaks them down into groups of two based on their ethnicity, which yeah. is pretty mind-blowing. The, the New Testament's like, hey, guys, we were thinking about this 2,000 years ago, and uh, the church is just catching on. But, you know, one of the things, uh, since I've been in these conversations, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my answers minimal but I have really thought that I would, um, I, I want to explore in particular black theology. I keep hearing raised that, look, the, the theology has largely within the evangelical church been driven by white theologians. And something that I came across recently in a book I was working on um, was from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his letters and papers from prison. And this is what he wrote, and it, it applies to this, and I've, I've been kind of resonant, you know, kind of meditating on this this week and in, in relation to this whole conversation. Um, Bonhoeffer said, we must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or admit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. And there was a dude who knew. <laughs> so that theology that, that comes out of suffering um, that that's powerful. I'm 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 chewing on that a bit. Um, so yeah, that's that's really I've I've wanted to, and we've had amazing resources like where people have said read this, read that, and so I'm starting to grab some of that in in trying to to maybe reframe my thinking, um, realizing that I have only been looking through white evangelical lenses, even at the Bible itself. That's crazy because it's not a white person book. <laughs> to begin with. So um, this leads into my next question, which is what has troubled you during this? Is there any raising, you know, arising concerns or have you, even through the, the situation, I mean, the world keeps changing in the last, you know, 12 weeks. Is there anything that's troubled you or any growing concerns that you've had as these conversations have progressed? Uh. A quick one for me, and this may be one of the biggest takeaways too, is that um, I asked Albert, not Albert, I asked uh, Brian Loritz the week before interviewing Albert Tate, um, why do you, th basically the premise is every church and especially every conference feels a new pressure to be diverse, um, a pressure that's far bigger than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago almost to the point where it'd be very unwise to not diversify your lineup if you're a conference, your leadership, if you're a church staff, um, just, yeah, it would just be unwise. Um, and so as churches and conferences are becoming more diverse, uh, specifically speaking to the church, I said, what we found is that there's far more white churches that want diversity among people of color um, than there is churches that are led by people of color that can have white people join their church in the sense that there are more people of color that will join a white church than there are white people that will join a church where they're the minority at a church that's people of color. And when I asked him, why do you think that is? Um, Brian Lurid said, it's a summarize. He said, 
because people of color are used to growing up as the minority where everything isn't built and designed around their comfort and for them. Um, and there's so many examples of that in life, let alone in the church. Um, he said they're used to being the minority where it's not built for them so they can go and be the minority at the church. But he said, uh, but for white people, it's just a lot harder for them to be the minority. That's um, they can almost go through all the life without being the minority. Um, and so to choose to such an important place like church um, is just kind of difficult. And he, what he said is they sometimes don't have the the emotional strength that that it takes to be uh, the minority to join uh, Latino, Black, Asian churches. And so that bothers me because it's it's uh, and I love your your thoughts on that, Ephraim. Of, uh, it bothers me because there's going to be a pressure on all churches to become more diverse, look more like the kingdom of God, uh, but it will be more difficult for uh, churches of color to do that than uh, predominantly white churches. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think I'm going to say something that connects to what you're talking about, Grant, and even circles back to something you were saying, Peyton, so I'll try not to take too long to to reflect on it, but you, you mentioned Brian Loritz, so uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, Brian Loritz is quoting um, a, a Christian uh, uh, sociologist, reconciliation um, uh, thought leader who, who said that um, 70% of multi-ethnic churches are led by white pastors, 19% by black pastors, 7% by Latinx pastors, 4% by Asian pastors. In 2012, 27% of church-attending Blacks attended multi-ethnic churches. It's now down to 19%. So uh, I, I, I share that because there's two things that um, we realized through these episodes uh, that were referred to. And some of this came from Barna. Some of this came from uh, the research of, of uh, Christian sociologist and, and Michael Emerson, who wrote yeah. Divided by Faith with Christian Smith years ago. But there's data that's showing us, one through Barna, that um, there's a, a segment of white evangelicals that it's significant that even in the midst of everything that's transpired the last seven months, they are actually less interested in engaging issues of race and justice and um, exploring uh, systemic racism and systemic injustice than before uh, all of this transpired. So the thought was, the George Floyd video would change everything. That no matter your politics, no matter if, if you believed systemic racism was a thing or you denied that it was a thing, uh, whether you believed in the colorblind approach or you believed in the, the kind of the restoration, uh, you know, uh, reconciling and repairing in, you know, and addressing injustice, that the thought was, when people saw the George Floyd video, finally, we were all going to be on the same page in the body of Christ and say, this is wrong. Something's got to change. We have to rethink how we're navigating this issue in the church. And Barna's saying, not for white evangelicals, that 
Now you could you could say maybe it's COVID nineteen and there's already enough anxiety and stressors upon um, this segment of our white brothers and sisters that they're just like, hey, I don't have additional energy to also lean into this race thing right now. So so we don't want to just go, oh, it's because this segment is racist and they don't want to change and they're never going to change. It there there could be a number of factors. So let's start there. But Barn is saying um, that that there are, in their surveys and their research, white evangelicals for the most part are less engaged, um, less willing to engage in uh, deep conversation, actions around systemic racism uh, and injustice than before the videos of Ahmaud Arbery, uh, yeah. um, uh, George Floyd, and the news about Breonna Taylor. If that's true, that's discouraging. While that's going on, there seems to be, based on uh, the you know data being presented by Dr. Michael Emerson and Dr. Curtis DeYoung, that there is an exodus of, of African Americans attending multi-ethnic churches with white senior pastors leaving those churches because they're like, okay, another video and my pastor really didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. Another video and my pastor rejected my trauma and grieving and just kind of told me just to have hope and uh, dream bigger dreams and uh, think positive and just focus on the gospel and just focus on the Bible. And that, that is not an attack against anyone or even a collection of white evangelical pastors. It's just saying that. It's just what's happening. Yeah. And, and it's like, this, this is not a judgment. This is not pointing a finger. This, this is just going, could it be that since the majority of multi-ethnic churches are led by white pastors, could it be that those white pastors, in some cases, aren't as equipped as they thought they were to pastor multi-ethnic churches? Now, I know that I'm, I'm, I'm rambling on a little bit here, but I want to try right. to give an explanation of why that is. Why is it that there, there's this exodus of black people leaving multi-ethnic churches led by white pastors. Why is that? Um, could it be that there's a collection of white evangelical pastors that aren't as equipped to pastor multi-ethnic churches as they thought they were? Mm. Why, next question, is it tough for them to admit that? This is what I think about that, okay? I think that the white church in the United States of America is the one church that's not defined by its ethnos, its culture, or its racialization. What I mean by that is, and I, and I definitely want to get Grant's take on this. No, I want to, I, my question was going to be like, what does that mean? So <laughs> go ahead. That, uh, that when you go to a black church, it's actually called black church. Even the black people that go there call it a black 
church. When you go mm-hmm. to a Hispanic church, it's called a Hispanic church. And even the Hispanic people or the Latinx people call the church Hispanic. They Asians call the church Korean. They call it a Chinese church. They yeah, call yeah. The white church is the one church where the, <laughs> where the white brothers and sisters going there somewhat refuse to define their church as a white church. They just see it as church. It's they just, do, yeah. and, and they define it by doctrine and denomination, not by race and culture. I go to a Lutheran church. I go to a Methodist church. I go to an evangelical church. I go to a Bible-believing church. I go to an attractional church. I go to a missional church. That's the way many of our white brothers and sisters define the church. They define it by mission, by doctrine, by denomination, not by, this is a white church. And you know what? If a black person were to come to this church, they would have to assimilate into the fact that there is a white heritage. There is a Swedish, because to say that, one, people have to believe that's true, but two, some people don't want to say it because let's just be honest, whiteness, to say white today, it's been so, it's been so positioned in divisiveness that to say whiteness, you feel like you're almost saying racist. So I don't want to say I'm white because then I feel like I'm saying I'm a white nationalist. So I don't want to say I'm white because then I, somebody's going to think I'm saying I'm a white supremacist. So I'm not even going to say I'm white. I'm just, <laughs> and so. Yeah, I mean, if a church did say, like, you're right, the Ethiopian church, they'll even say, not even just black church. This is, uh, our friends go to Ethiopian church. Um, yeah. If a white church said, yeah, we're a white church, that would sound racist. <laughs> Um, if they did the exact same thing because of the, the negative connotation that you're talking about. So we have to figure out a way for the white church to be able to say it's a white church without the initial saying it brings guilt and shame. Yeah. But then unpack some things about what it means once you can admit without the first reaction being shaming and guilt to admit you're a white yeah. church. So it's, it's, it's funny you say this. Yeah, go on. Sorry. Oh, no. And so then, if, if you can admit that you're a white church, it suspends the thought that everything you're doing as a church is universal and can work faithfully and fruitfully in any context. So what I'm trying to say is that I think some white pastors believe if I just get diversity on the worship team, if I just get diversity on staff, if I just get diversity on the board, everything will change. And we can keep doing children's ministry the way we're doing it. We can keep doing youth ministry the way we're doing it. We can keep preaching the way we're doing it. We can keep making decisions the way we're doing it. We can keep shaping everything in in methodology, in ministry models the exact same way, because what started this church are universal principles because the thought is if I'm successful in this context, I can be successful in any context. And so I think when yeah. you don't name the white church as white and you just see it as, as normative church, then you start thinking these principles, this methodology that you see as cultureless you think can work in any cultural context. 
And that's why I think too many pastors don't feel a need to go, I need to go back to the drawing board. I need to read different books. I need pastors of color speaking into my life, holding me accountable, mentoring me. I might need to go on sabbatical for two months and like immerse myself in some multicultural context and then come back pastoring in a different way. So I, I, I know I went yeah. for a while there, but it's I thought right. that was. It, it is. And I think some of it, you, to me, you really hit the nail on the head when you're saying that um, there's the inability to admit. Like, for example, when pastors all of a sudden started speaking about this after the video of George Floyd, um, some of the um, some of the, the the pushback, and you know, fair enough. If we've ignored these issues, we deserve some pushback as white leaders. And some of the pushback was, "Well, you're bringing this up now, but it's too late. I'm worn out. I'm tired." Now, some white leaders, when when they heard that, they went, oh, see, I can't do any anything right. You know, I, I, I can't. So now that I've raised it, now you're, rather than going the next step and saying, you're right, that's a failure on my part. You see, what, what happened was a lot of um, uh, virtue signaling and posturing when the George Floyd ha- thing happened with white men, where it was easy to say, hey, you know, boom, boom, boom. Because as you said in the beginning, everybody was unified over George Floyd's death. Everybody came together. Everybody admitted that was wrong. Okay, there, they, you did start hearing that, well, he was this and that, you know, and the, and the counterpoints to it. But initially, everybody was on the same page. And I remember thinking, wow people were really speaking out in the white church. And I was encouraged um, because back when back black lives matter first started at from, you know, I was in long beach and I remember praying into the pain. I had no idea. And people gave a standing ovation for that prayer. And I remember thinking, I've never had that in all my minute, but my church was 50% black. So, um, you know, I think for them, it was radical for someone to pay into, pray into the pain when even way back then, when everything was happening, you know, Ferguson is, is what I'm talking about. For, for people back then to hear a, a white leader side with the pain of the black community and pray in that direction, it was huge. But, but I think what's hard about our system in white church is that there's a pastor up on stage. He's always the good guy, Right. He always knows things. He's the expert. It's his business. It's his job to know things. Now, for me, I'm in a team leadership, right? I, I, I would subscribe to Alan Hirsch's definition, the APAS, the apostolic. So I'm like, hey, I only know one-fifth of the stuff I'm supposed to know. You got to talk to the prophetic leaders, the evangelistic, the teacher, the shepherds. Those guys know all that stuff. I know this stuff over here. I'm one-fifth of the equation. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that fancy. I'm not that smart. I don't got it all figured out. I rotate in and out of the pulpit, so I'm not the guy that's expected to have all the answers. But when you have a system that says you are the person who knows everything, for that person who's been up there to be able to turn and look and say, I have failed you for 10 or 20 years because I've been silent my entire ministry, it's a bigger ask for them. But I also think it points a little bit to the system and structure of the way that things are set up. I think leaders, 
like you said, have had to say, you know what, you're right. I should not have been silent because what happened was they wanted to be the good guy and come in and be the person that said the right things. And that pushback was just a little too much challenge. So, Hey, this is kind of conversations. We can be controversial and I'm, I'm pushing back on white leaders because when you then got called to account for, well, why didn't you talk to some, why have you been silent? That just needed an apology, an admission of you're right. It was wrong for me to be silent or even I didn't know. I was ignorant. I do live. Live in a white bubble. Those things are like guys. So maybe, maybe I got the wrong stick of, maybe I can't say what's more healing, but I talk to people. <laughs> well, Grant, this is, this is going to be now my venture into Marvel, the Marvel universe. Go ahead and do it. Come on, here we go. We're going since, since Peyton, well, that's not Marvel, but Peyton is doing his, he's, 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 he's on the Are you on the I like Hulk, Captain America, and Wolverine, so I'm I'm okay. I can I can keep up with this. The the ship you're on right there is that the Millennium Falcon? Or, at first, I thought maybe that was like Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, <laughs> no, I think ship. that's Star Wars. That's Star Wars. Okay, so here's here's my venture into uh, the Marvel universe as we talk about this. I think it is uh, DC. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Now, what is that? Superman I could go player? DC. I can make it happen. <laughs> you did. Okay, I'm Felix a cat over here. I got a bag of tricks. All right. We'll work our way to DC, but I'm going to start with Mark. <laughs> I think pastors, to navigate this issue, we have to be more like Luke Cage. Okay. There's, there's, there's my Marvel. Excellent. Uh, I got gotcha. you. Because, you know, Luke Cage, this, uh, this hero from Harlem, his superpower is not that he can fly. It's not that he can see through buildings. It's that he's got impenetrable skin. I think I said that word right. Hmm. That yeah. his skin, like if you shoot at him, the bullets bounce off his skin. If you try to stab him, the knife hits his skin and the knife blade bends. You can't penetrate his skin. His superpowers, he has thick skin. Yeah. And I think that there, there's been a lot of thin skinness. Uh, and that's come from people of various ethnicities and, uh, and, and demographic perspectives uh, as we've navigated this. It's like you, you, you say something, and the, the first reaction from the person that you say you love, that you say is your brother or sister in Christ, the first reaction from your brother and sister in Christ is defensiveness, anger, offended. And so uh, I, I just think that we, we, need, we need some Luke Cage in, yeah. in the body of Christ right now. We need, we need, some, we need some thick skin. Now, Grant, I, I wanted to ask you, because along with this data of white evangelicals uh, not being as engaged, uh, not leaning in as much as we would hope on issues of race and racial injustice, and what seems like uh, an exodus of, of at least African Americans out of yeah. multi-ethnic churches led by, by white pastors, 
Yeah. There's also some data coming out now saying that young people are leaving the church. And now that's been going on for a while, but there's new data that's yeah. showing us the rate at which young adults, college students, young adults are leaving the church. Is the church's voice or lack thereof on justice part of the reason these young people are leaving the church? I, I do think so. I remember this was ironically on the Albert Tate episode. I said, why is the most cause-oriented generation in the world not connecting with the most cause-oriented organization in the world being the church? And I think because we've shifted our cause from renewing culture and redeeming culture to getting people to come to church um, and especially getting young people to come to church. Um, and so that's not really that impressive and that's not really that exciting. Um, I would say it's, it's so uninspiring to the next generation that is dying to be a part of a cause or something bigger than themselves when your main call to action is come, come next back next week. Like uh, one time, ironically, I preached at an exponential event. Uh, it was one of the regionals. And I said, the, the call to action by the church almost every week at the end of your message, that's when you get your call to action. At the end of almost every message, it sounds like this. this the pastor finishes a sermon, he prays, and then some MC of some sort comes up and he says, hey guys, wasn't that an incredible message? And he always talks different. He talks like he's talking to like little kids. He's like, guys, we're just so excited you guys are here. We're just so grateful, man. Can we just give it up for pastor whatever? And everyone starts clapping for that guy. And then he says, but now before you guys leave, I just want to tell you something. Next week, we got this brand new series. And we always hit our hands like this when we talk about next week and we promote it. And he's like, and you guys do not want to miss it next week. See you there. And so you're like, oh, my God, I, I've never worked in a church. So I'm, I always see myself as a I get to view this as an outsider, but I'm on the same team. Um, but I, I get to receive. I'm not I'm not on staff. Um, and so I come back next week and next week, pastor preaches a sermon. They do the new series. And uh, at the very end of the message, the MC it might be the same guy, it might be a different guy. But no matter what, it's going to sound something like this. Hey, guys, wasn't that incredible? Can we just give it up for Pastor? And we start clapping. Now, guys, before you leave, I just want to tell you, next week, we got this brand new message. I just can't wait. Maybe when we have a brand new speaker and you do not want to miss it, come back next week. And that basically, you come back next week and I, you could already guess what they're going to do. MC is going to come up. He's going to do that again. And let's just keep repeating that for the rest of your existence. That kind of is by and large, what the call to action is, is come back next week. Just listen to churches at the end. They always say it like next week. They do the same thing. And so I'd say, you know, the difference between churches and causes, if you will, is a church is coming saying next week, show up to this thing. And we say we're not a building. We say we're not an event. We say we're not Sunday morning, but dang, all we're calling them to is a building next week. Ooh. While causes are saying, guys, get off your... Get off of Call of Duty, get off your computer, get off Netflix. There are people, and they'll tell the story of the people that are hurting in another country, in your own neighborhood, people that are being victimized, people that are being uh, literally kidnapped. They're a cause or a nonprofit in a lot of ways. They're, they're selling the vision of this is what is happening to someone, and here's what you can do about it. Get out, of, stop being comfortable, and come join this bigger story. And when I look at Jesus, I don't feel like it's come back next week. I feel like it's come and follow me and we're going to go change the world. And so uh, I just think, unfortunately, the church is the right place 
but it's got the wrong urgency and sometimes the wrong messaging. While the world has the, is the wrong place in it, but it does have like this idea of you can be a part of something, come and join what we're doing. And I think that's why we end up with a lot of cause-oriented, but not gospel-influenced uh, groups that a lot of, I think, great, talented young Christians are, are choosing to prioritize more than church right now. Okay, nothing against all the hosts we had for all those other episodes, but I revised my answer, and what you just stated is my new insight and takeaway. Because that is so on point, Grant. So on point of, of, of how the church operates right now, of yeah. the comeback next week, the comeback next week. And I think that's what's in some ways caused anxiety and, and uh, paralysis upon the church in America during COVID-19. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In what we're calling people. So now we're just like, are we calling people back to our online service next week? Yeah. Come back to the online <laughs> worship next week and start a watch party. And yeah, share exactly. it on Facebook. And if you don't have Facebook, we're going to put it on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I, I remember talking to Jeff Vanderstelt on, on one of our webinars with Exponential and him saying, I said, what, do you, what would you say to the pastors that are so depressed right now, so discouraged right now, because they've not seen people come to their events and maybe even to their online events. And he said, you shouldn't be depressed or sad you should, you, unless you have the wrong like, scorecard. If your scorecard is, he said, what this is doing is revealing that we put way too much of our scorecard in people showing up to our event. And now it's our online gathering said it, you should be seeing an opportunity of how do I leverage these people to be the people of God in such a difficult time when people need hope is like, who's good at doing that? Like the people of God are too good at doing that. Yep. No, no, no. That. And, uh, okay. And this is how we make ourselves to the, to the DC universe, Peyton. This is how we're- <laughs> Let's go. Hey, I, you know, we only have a couple minutes left, so I was going to go there. I was like, Hey, you know, uh, in fact, I disappeared. I had to, I had to go get prep for this question. Actually, my call dropped out. I don't know what happened. So I think I was meant to just let you two talk. But, uh, okay, candid conversations, lots of controversy ahead for this next question. Marble DC and why? Oh, man, don't make me make that decision because I, I don't want to lose some of my followership. <laughs> <laughs> now you understand. <laughs> in the, in the, when it comes to films, and when it comes to live streaming series, I'm a Marvel person. When it comes to comics, graphic novels, animation, animated movies, DC. That's yeah. kind of separated. DC's killing the game. In, well, except when Marvel came with that into the, that, that Spider-Man multiverse deal. Yeah, but... I'm telling you, um, I, when it comes to animated films, DC's, man, they, they are killing it in a good way. And in, and in the graphic yeah. novels, they're killing it in a good way. But, you know, on film, oh, oh Marvel. Yeah, Marvel Studios was genius. But 
I, I would, so let, well, let me let Grant answer that question. I, I probably, I mean, I think like I'm a hundred percent, I agree with everything he said. The only thing I'd add is uh, DC is better as of right now at video games too. Um, this like mm -hmm. Arkham Knight and Bat, uh, all Batman, all that. The only exception is uh, Spider-Man game is a great, incredible game. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, also, uh, what was I going to tell you? But I'm excited. I mean, I think probably it sounds similar to Ephraim is, uh, there are a lot of Marvel people that just hate DC, no matter what DC does. And like, um, and then there are DC people that hate Marvel. I actually, I just love superhero stories. So I want both to do well. Like I, it, I'm bummed. I've seen every DC movie and I'm, it sounds like Ephraim probably has too. And I'm, I'm disappointed when they're not that good. Um, Cause I want them all to be good. I like all the stories. Uh, but it, yeah, unfortunately DC has not done too well at movies other than the Joker late recently. And I'm excited for uh, suicide squad. Cause I think James Gunn who did, Guardians of the Galaxy, who's now doing Suicide Squad 2, will do a really good job there. Yeah, if the Russo brothers would just come over from Marvel and do a Justice League movie. Yeah, they would save that thing. And I don't know if you've seen the, um, the trailer of the new Batman movie. Yeah, it does look pretty solid. It looks pretty good. Yeah. I, I'm not really, I don't know if I'm familiar with the actor. That's playing <laughs> yeah, he's, he's from Twilight. <laughs> You know oh, who that is? Yeah, yeah. That, he, that's why a lot oh. of people are, are questioning him. He's the okay. he's the vampire from Twilight. And, I didn't and that's get why that. he's also okay. not that big. He couldn't he's just not a big guy. <laughs> he's a skinny Batman. Well, a little something for the ladies there, I suppose. But Ephraim, uh, before this conversation, you tied, uh, before we went live on this, you tied this back into The Watchmen, which also is a DC property, which was meant to be about the Justice League when it was first written. Um, Grant Morrison, I think it was. And they ended up changing that because they're like, whoa, we're going places. That was one of the very first, very political comic books it came out in the 80s extremely political um tell us a little because you mentioned that that's currently if you wanted to go deeper into some of these topics and even on issues of diversity that is a show that does not pull any punches anything you want to say about that well you know the 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 watchman series on on um on hbo along with um the 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 way the Luke Cage character was treated on Netflix and the Marvel series and the Black Panther movie dives into something that's being referred to in recent years as Afrofuturism, hmm. which means in in that you look at current realities of race through the lens of envisioning. Um, either in totality or in part, the super liberated, heroic, courageous, change agent black figures, whether that's Mr. Manhattan being a black man, or that's the Black Panther or Luke Cage. It's like you, you don't totally suspend yourself from the reality of what's going on in the current moment, but you use Afrofuturism, which means you, you create um, a, a fictional storyline of what it would look like if there was some existence of black people not experiencing racism or not being colonized 
or having the supernatural power to take on the system of injustice without the, the system killing them. That, that's what you see in a series like Watchmen or Luke Cage or Black Panther mm. that, that is significant. Now, what, what I'll do to kind of come over to your, um, your, your Superman scene over there. Or to the solitude. Is I will say maybe that's the lesson we can learn. When I, when I think of Superman, especially, uh, and I know I'm moving away now from your initial question. I think of superheroes from another realm, Wonder Woman, Superman. You can almost put Black Panther in this, you know, Wakanda being from another, this, this place that we didn't know that exists with all these resources that hasn't been colonized. Um, you, maybe that is helpful in us going, what if Christians navigated the issue of race as citizens of another realm. It's good. It's really good. Christians, instead of navigating race by choosing Democrat or Republican, patriotic or critic, what if we approached it as we are citizens from another realm? We are not from here. We are, we are, we are aliens. We, we are, we are representatives of the kingdom of God and we bring the kingdom of God collectively to bear on the social realms, on, on, on the social issues of the realm in which we live. We're in the world, yeah. but we're not of it. Yeah. It's yeah. good. It's it reminds good. me of uh, Tony Evans. It's kind of common when he speaks on this, he talks about football. He's been a chaplain for the uh, God's team, Dallas Cowboys for so long. And, um, he talks about how we are supposed to be far more like refs um, in that we are part of the game. We're in the game. We, we influence the game, um, but we are not to choose sides. Um, we, however, if we don't play our role. If we just back out, it does impact the, the, the game. And he said too many, too many of us are not being like refs. We're, we're totally trying to help one side and choose one side and it, and it shows. Um, and it, it shows me that kind of that analogy of uh, we're outsiders that are in this world, but yeah, like, like ironically full circle, not of it. Yeah. We have to always remember that uh, the followers of Jesus, even as close as 12, were trying to get him to seize earthly power. And he had to constantly push back and say, Hey, my, my kingdom's out of this world. You know, this isn't, isn't what I'm meant to do. And I think we, we always need to remind, we are his followers trying to press Jesus back into earthly power and he will resist it no matter how hard we try. And well, guys, this conversation, I want to thank you on behalf of Exponential, both of you, for going the distance for 12 weeks to do this. It means a lot to us. I know it means a lot to the people that have been watching and showing up. I feel like you are a major class dunce if you did, if you did not receive an education. That's a you problem if you came and sat here week after week joining in these conversations because these have been extremely honest, enlightening. Appreciate uh, you guys not just sharing your thoughts, but sharing yourselves, like Paul says in Thessalonians. I, I didn't just share with you my the gospel, but our very lives. And you guys have certainly done that. And it, it, it took a lot of guts. Um, it took a lot of trust. And I appreciate that. Um, and I know Exponential does. And we want to thank Todd Wilson 
as well. Yes, he's my boss. Am I, am I kissing a little butt here? No, I have to say, honestly, I am extremely proud of him as the leader of Exponential to have the courage to, to step out, not knowing um, you know, all those months ago what was going to happen, but having the commitment courage to say, it's worth it. This is important, and it ties back into multiplication. It might seem like we're getting a little mission drift here, but like we've said, to reach every tongue, tribe, and nation, it's going to take every tongue, tribe, and nation. So thank you, everybody. Guests, thank you. And really quickly, this show, we're still working it out, what it's going to look like, but this show will go on um, in, in some show format. We don't know if it's how we're going to handle it, who the hosts are going to be. Some of these guys might come back. They may not. But the reality is um, the reason we brought it at the end and had a little fun is we're actually going to be um, covering – uh, a, a full range of topics. We want to have the freedom to not only speak of diversity, but also other relevant things that come. Obviously, we've got an election. Maybe, maybe that would be something to talk about, but we want to continually open up the relevant conversations that need to happen while staying on diversity as well. So uh, you can come back, check in on the hub regularly, make sure. And if you want to continue the conversation on diversity, we're already getting awesome feedback. Um, People that have done the roundtables have said it's been incredible. It's a half-day event. It's $39 right now if you want to join. Uh, That's still a special. Exponential is keeping the price very low. Um, You can go to multiplication.org forward slash roundtables. And also um, the importance of this is it's this conversation on a deeper level with, uh, you know, people that, that are in your locality and each one will be different. The, your local leaders will decide which speakers, what topics um, are relevant to your context. So be sure to check that out. You can buy tickets in groups of five tens or more for dis- further discounts. I mean, 39 bucks is cheap, but uh, hey, you know, if, if you're a missionary and you're a missionary-minded person, your favorite number is cheaper. So go ahead and check that out, multiplication.org forward slash roundtables. And we want to thank you one more time for joining us, and we'll see you next time on The Hub. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.